Episode of these snogging teenagers in it, where we talk about skins and other British shows over the summer. Yeah, man. What was that? Was that British or was that uh, was that like um, uh, Caribbean? You know, it kind of got away from me there for a minute. I was going British. <laughs> it was you think you're, you you're doing the accent, but the accent's really doing you. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I think that we as readers construct our own accents when we hear people talking. You would say yeah, that. So yeah. skins, man. Episodes, uh, episodes three and four, and maybe going back to episode two, cause we didn't really get through it. I feel like, hey, as Jordan, a, as who a, are we? Who are we, Jordan? I don't fucking know. <laughs> 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 you see, this is what happens, right? You we and your fucking, you, your, your colonialist episode. construct of identity and the, the, the whole thing. No, right, I, I right. don't know who I am. With, I don't know what to say on this <laughs> podcast unless somebody introduces me. Yeah, with with me as always are uh, from from the left coast of America, Matthew Rather. What? What? And um and uh, John Levin in Africa, uh, calling in for the first time to be on the podcast. <laughs> um, um, thanks a lot for having me. Um. um <laughs> Good morning, Baltimore. <laughs> this episode is going to be called uh, Experimental Noise Collective Version 2.0. <sighs> uh, you tell me to host the podcast, and I say, if elected, I will not serve. Uh, no, with, with us as always from Africa is Ryan Sheely, um, the, the youth littering semiotic specialist of, uh, <laughs> of Eastern Kenya. Africa. How's it going, man? It's good, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hosting. You're doing you're doing great so far. You're doing great. <laughs> and to, to, you should also tell people you should tell people that the, the they can contact us at TFT Podcast at overthinkingit.com with their reading responses or by calling the voicemail at two zero three two eight five six four zero one. You should mention that to everyone. It's, that it's no fun to be in charge, but then it's it's fun to to boss around the person who's nominally in charge. <laughs> it's That's like, why we invite you on this podcast, Jordan. <laughs> you know what this is like? It's like colonialism. It's just like that. I have some people just just next door who I would really sympathize with that probably. Yeah. In addition, in addition to all that, we're on we're on the twitters, right? At uh, yeah. And uh, and and you can always go to to the website www.overthinkingit.com, where we uh, subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it doesn't probably deserve. doesn't deserve. Man, probably, that was a, probably that was but, a short uh, episode. <laughs> But in this case, this is your, you've tuned into these fucking teenagers where we typically subject Glee and Gossip Girl to a level of scrutiny that they do deserve. And the summer are trying to subject the, the British uh, teen soap skins to some level of scrutiny. Whether it deserves it or not is still an open question. We may talk about that in a little, in a little while. Um, I think that as a, as a service to our listeners... Because there are some listeners who signed up for this podcast when it was Glee and Gossip Girl and are now stuck watching Skins that they may not, may not really know a lot about that show. We should give just a, a tiny little summary of the episodes in question. 
So we're, we're doing episodes three and four, which are uh, Jal and Chris. Basically what happens with Jal is that she is a clarinet virtuoso, and her father is a rap star, and there's some tension there. And she's, uh, she's trying out to be the best young Awkward. artist. Awkward! Yeah. Uh, the, the, be- the best musician in all of England, and her, uh, her clarinet gets smashed. Then there's a touching moment where her father buys her a clarinet. That's basically the plot of that one. Uh, the, the plot of Chris is that he's a, a giant rampaging drug addict, and he loses his house. That's basically the plot there. So you have some kind of context, right, before we, we go in and use this as a springboard for all the... And this the totally doesn't sound at all like a back-to-school or an after-school special. <laughs> Not at all, right? Not at all. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. We talked about uh, after-school specials last time. And I feel like in some ways these are after-school specials because they're dealing with the issues that after-school specials deal with. But in some ways they aren't. Like, I think that uh, the... The sort of the drug trip scenes in the Chris episodes make taking random pills, like mainly Viagra, I think is what he takes, makes it seem like a pretty good time. And most after school specials are not really going to do that. Um, Here's a question is, is there a reason, like, is there, like, do you, this is what I couldn't understand in the Chris episode. Was he taking Viagra, like, because it actually, like, was it a mistake? He thought he was taking another pill or. Was he taking Viagra to have a monster boner? Or is there another, like, psychological or, like, you know, more psychotropic effect from taking Viagra? That's a very good question. I think that um, he, I mean, he claims that he took it by accident, right? That's what he tells people. Or that, he, then, lost tra- or that he lost track of how much he was taking. Yeah. And then at the, at the very end, he quite clearly pulls out a package of pills, looks at it, it's Viagra, and he takes one. But at that point, that's after people have told him that his, uh, that his penis, which we all know is very, very small. That's like the, the other defining characteristic of, uh, of the character Chris, right? He's a drug addict with a small penis. They've told him that taking the Viagra has made his penis slightly bigger. So it may be that he's trying to just bulk up at that point. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of complex situation. I got uh, I got very insecure before when you suggested that we were alienating the Gossip Girl and Glee listeners by focusing on skins for so long. I, I just want to reassure everyone that we'll be back to Gossip Girl and Glee when those shows return from hiatus. <laughs> I mean, I think that the people who listen to us at this point like are are probably doing it out of an affection for uh, for curse words and and critical theory. <laughs> But it's just like we wouldn't want to make them have to watch Skins to keep listening to the show. Isn't it funny how an affection for curse words and an affection for political theory often go hand uh, political theory, critical theory often go hand in hand? Postmodernism is like a thin crust pizza. You know, I've heard that. <laughs> I've heard that. I saw that on a on a PowerPoint deck somewhere. Yeah, exactly. I, I, now, there's something to him, like you know. It's it's the we we've established earlier on the show that it is the the telos of the girl to go wild, right? But it, it's sort of the 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 telos of the teenager to rampage, right? And I think that the pill popping is kind of indiscriminate, you know, mm-hmm. that they're they're just it's just because they're pills, you know, it's this kind right, of right. They're like Mount Everest, right? He, yeah. He takes Viagra because the Viagra is what he has. Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, right, exactly. It's a, it's a little blue pill, and you know, you put it in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> it's little, and you put it in your mouth. That's what Chris's girlfriend said. <laughs> Which is is also kind of interesting because it suggests that he's not all the drugs that he does, right? He's not doing them for the effect. 
sure. he's doing them because he's got drugs. Well, yeah, that high is life, this. So he kind of escapes drugs. This high, like high, is this sort of abstract state that he, uh, uh, you know what I mean? That is that is desirable. Right, right. And like the specific qualities of any specific high doesn't matter. And I wonder, I mean, like if we have any any recovering uh, drug drug addicts who are our listeners or current drug addicts, you know, who want to want to want to speak to that, please do send us a reading response letting us know, like, in your experience of taking way too many drugs, does it matter what kind of high you're going for or do you just swallow the pills that you've got? Because it seems like for Chris, having a 12 hour boner is like a perfectly acceptable result. Uh, from the process of dosing himself, you know, it's like neither neither better nor worse than any of the other things that's going to happen to him. They, I mean, I think that that uh, from what I know about this sort of uh, drug addiction recovery community, they talk about a drug of choice, but then uh, to them, sort of a drug is a drug is a drug is a drug, which is why you will see people who are uh in recovery from narcotics addiction for example not or from say actually let's use two different drugs from like methamphetamine addiction not drinking either you know um mm-hmm. that that you'll sort of abstain from all uh all uh drugs of addiction uh when you recover when you recover from one and and i guess that's not universally held uh as a precept in the recovery community but but in the mainstream of it, it it definitely is so so my understanding is that real addicts have a drug of choice but really in a pinch anything will do because the the point is to uh the point is to escape um some uh you know unmanageable um uh, some unmanageable situation uh, that the person is facing, whether it's you know the circumstances around them or the circumstances, the kind of internal circumstances, and that's definitely something, uh, you know, that's definitely something that 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 applies to Chris here. Like, I mean, let's just just catalog the way the the number of ways this guy's life is shit. A, he has a small dick. <laughs> right, right. A, uh, <laughs> B, he. He lives with his mother, who is kind of an absentee. I mean, we're sort of introduced to her at the beginning of the episode when she leaves him an envelope with a bunch of money in it, like a, a couple a couple of thousand dollars worth, a thousand pounds, and just says, like, be good. And he doesn't know where she went. Right. He thinks, like, maybe she went on vacation. It quickly becomes clear that she's just up and abandoned him. Right. Um, and like you know, we're not given to understand exactly what's going on with his home life, but, right. but there's, there's, there's that. implied that there's like mental insub- that she's mentally unstable also, and that like this is not like a this is not out of character, right? right. This is like right. the sort of thing that she does um, frequently. And then uh, there's his sort of his past psychological trauma, right? Which is, I mean, you know. Characters got to have a tragic past. It's TV writing 101. Um, I don't know if they were ever completely clear about this. I kind of put it together that he had accidentally killed his baby brother or something like that. But uh, I was, I'll, I'll be honest, I had kind of lost interest in the episode by that point and was checking email. I didn't go back to check. So can one of you guys fill me in? What was the deal there? No, I don't. I, I, did we really figure out how the brother died, Ryan? Um, yeah, uh, he was getting Newports, um, at the drugstore and, uh, <laughs> a, a five-year-old with a gun shot him, right? <laughs> oh, oh, you're not, you're his other brother, not his, the, not his older brother, Omar. You're, you're talking, I don't know about the other brother. Yeah. But the, the other brother, the other brother is dead. In any <laughs> his, case. his brother from another mother, Omar. Yeah. 
And uh, and whether Chris actually had anything to do with his death or not, he blames himself for it, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's like that's the big trauma that he's taking drugs to escape. Sure. Also, I think being abandoned by your your mother is no great shakes either. Well, also, it's no great yeah, shakes. Also, but, I mean, dad, he was, wants, uh, dad wants nothing to do with him, and you know. yeah. And I mean, and he was a drug addict before uh, his mother, his mother fucked off. Right. Like we, he, he goes into a, a big downward spiral in this episode. But he was introduced to us as the big druggy character who, uh, you know, is, is always kind of a, a hot mess, as it were. The um, you know, the the parents, I mean, the the stepmother who he goes to visit, I, I think, is sort of an interesting figure. Uh yeah, I'd I'd put I'd put that you know parental sort of uh, romantic attachment, sexual attachment with um, uh, with Jal's dad and his uh, sexual attachment to the sort of young white singer who's you mm-hmm. know, practically Jal's age, and with um, uh, uh, who is it Cassie's uh, parents who are always painting each other in the nude, right? Right. Who, who right. Are, who are uh, uh, bohemians, right? And um, that this, uh, you know, that the the erotic attachments of the parents seem to be one of the things that um, uh, make them unfit as parents. Right, right. You know, there's a sense in this show that it's about teenagers who are growing up too fast because they're, you know, they're babies making babies and all that, you know. But then it's also about parents who have not grown up enough because they're still trying to be sexually active. And that's presented as like a great tragedy. Well, they're trying, I mean, they're trying to be sexually active in a way that is at variance with their responsibilities as parents. You you know what I mean? But that's interesting because, like, on some hand, on one hand, like, because this is, as we discussed last week, um, you know, the adults in this show are the least depicted um, of, of e- adults in any of the three shows that we, we sure. consider. Um, and, and in fact, like these sort of, you know, attempted sex lives of Mr. Shu and Emma in Glee or of, uh, of Rufus and, and Lily in Gossip Girl are, are themselves plot lines. And that I think what's interesting for some reason is that in Glee and Gossip Girl, the sexual lives of, um, of of the adults follow the same. Like they're they're kind of more in parallel with the lives of the teenagers, and it's not a problem. And in fact, there's like there's sort of you know, insofar as there are uh, causal relationships between these the various sexual lives, um, it's just like you know, insofar as you know, like in in Gossip Girl, um, Dan and, and Serena, um, you know, can't can't hump because their parents want to hump uh, each other um, and, and, and this and that, right? So they, they, relate, they relate to each other as part of the same universe and the same set of goals. Whereas in, in um, Skins, we don't, we, you know, the, there's these things, the, the, the sort of relationships of their, their par- the parents come in um, as, as like, you know, part of the dysfunction dysfunction or a sort of um you know a cause of the a, a root cause of the dysfunction um it seems like um, uh in yeah. let me cut in for a second in skins parental sexuality is a condition rather than an event right it's it's like always already there and the the teenagers react to it it doesn't seem to move from point to point the way that it does on either of the other shows also postmodernism is a thin crust pizza <laughs> yes, that's very true. But I mean, when you when you were saying earlier that um, that they are these adults are sexual in a way that uh, interferes with their ability to be parents, it's not been made clear to us that there is any way for an adult to be sexual which is not 
uh, interfering with their their role in Luca Parentis, right? Like the um, Jal's father, his problem is that he's messing around with these uh, these young wannabe singers rather than being with uh, with his you know with her mother. Um, but if he was with her mother, then it would probably fall into this where they're too kind of like wrapped up with each other to pay attention to the fact that their daughter is slowly killing herself, right? Like there, there isn't any, any firm ground on which to stand if you're an adult in this universe. I said. Their daughter is slowly killing herself? Uh, should, we, should we go back and talk about, about eating disorders again? Oh, okay. Yeah, because Sorry. I actually think that that is where we first get this. Like there is like a, a sort of, you know, establishment of a causal relationship between parental behavior and, you know, the the sort of um, troubled life of the teenager, right? That we we sort of um, in in the Cassie episode, you know, that as they reveal a bit more and more about her her home life, um, you know, they, it, it's it's definitely left pretty implicit that her her bohemian parents uh, and their do- you know their their doting on one another and their kind of neglect for their uh, for I guess her baby brother, um, it's unclear. I think those are, those are are her birth parents. Like there's not a step there, so it's her her baby brother. Um, you know, is is at least part of you know her that her it's it's pain. There's the the theory of psychological causation is you know somehow. I mean, there's there's like a folk theory somehow that her eating disorder is like. A like uh, they manifest Cassie's eating disorder as a desire to order food and order uh, space and regulate, um, mm-hmm. and it seems to be from this kind of like a reaction to, to be depicted as a reaction to this sort of spontaneous like self involvement of, um, of of her parents. The, sure, um, sure. This is, uh, you know, I've gone on and on about this at length, but this is the kind of thing that is just lazy writing to me that hmm. is uh, rampant across all um, uh, all television, which is the kind of psychological determinism of, you know, childhood trauma. Uh uh, right, and this is the reason why I like Law and Order, or at least liked it when it was uh, when it was still on the air. Now that it's you know now that it's canceled, which is that there are no speeches that's you know that are like you know when uh, when I was three years old, I witnessed a robbery, and ever since mm-hmm. that moment, I wanted to be a police detective, and here I am today, and right. I can't catch the you know the son of a bitch who held up the et cetera et cetera et cetera, and that yeah you know what I mean that this is like there's this kind of one to one correspondence there's this you know even if it's even if it's circuitous even if it's a sort of rube goldberg machine of determinism there's a uh, there's a psychological determinism that i think is is ultimately not supported by the the lived experience of life yeah you know childhood trauma is going to affect people of course but it it does it in in bizarre and unexpected ways, you, you know what I mean? And it's, it's kind of not like you put, you know, you put self-involved bohemian parents in, you get an eating disorder out the other end. Though I, though I, suppose, I suppose what I'm objecting to is sort of drawing, drawing a line you know, from the initial conditions to the pathology in, in so, so straight away. And I think that that's something that this, you know, this show does where, where it's, you know, it's content to um, let a lot of things be. Like, have you noticed how long a lot of the takes are? 
compared mm-hmm. with American cho- uh, uh, American television shows and how far back the camera uh, stays right in a in like um, medium or sort of medium long shots say from the waist. That's right. Up. These cinematographers they they know their Godard right. Or, uh, <laughs> not their Godard. It's more like a Renoir really. Like uh. <laughs> well, it's it's cinematic. It's true that it's cinematic as opposed to television. I mean, the the tradition with television is because the screens were smaller, you would push in closer on the faces, and television is to, you know television uh, is shot more as, as a series of close-ups than uh you know anything that that hangs back um a lot but uh, uh you know but here they they just kind of and they're they're okay with silence I, I mean i really like that about this show i will say like the the determinism that you're talking about i find that a little bit annoying here too because in a way it's almost like the show is arguing in bad faith like the the first episode um, and the sort of the paratext around it when you watch like ads and things like that. It seems like it's going to be a show that's about how teenagers today are living in this amoral sex and drugs jungle. And it's something that you not being part of that world cannot possibly understand. You know, and for people who are part of like who are teenagers who are watching it, it's going to say, you know, we're going to depict your lives as you live them. And it's not going to be a travel guide for people from the outside. We're going to sort of focus on the the fundamentally inexplicable aspect of it. But then every episode since the first has been about kind of explaining exactly why things are the way that they are. Sure. So. So like it, it, it purports to be a mystery and ends up being the solution to a mystery, and I find that slightly obnoxious. Yeah, I, you know what? I I actually I sort of understand. I, I really get that, and I you know I think that that's right. <laughs> you seem so surprised. I actually understand what you're kind of talking about. It's a new experience for well, I, this entire show. When I heard the when well for any of us when I heard the phrase "always already" come out of your mouth, I thought I thought we were going to get a lot of uh, post-structuralism, and I was I was I was I was steadying myself to nod very knowingly at everything you said, but not really understand a word that was coming out of your mouth which is how you know how i react to a lot of that <laughs> much, much like a much like a thin crust pizza um you know I, I i think i know what the toppings are i think i know uh that i that i want it but i really i don't understand it that's um, you know I, what actually jordan like that's also the dodge of post-structuralism by the way right mm-hmm. like the and, and even even in like structure sign and play in the discourse of the human sciences. It's even in that, you know, which is like, <laughs> that's like, Oh yeah. So, so I was going in here with like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the one, I mean, that's the one that any of our, that's the one that any of our, you know, any of our sort of people who have done any sort of post-structuralism in college have definite, you've definitely read that essay, right? Like that's the, <laughs> Oh no. Oh, it's short. Read, you read it. Someone put that in the suggested reading for the uh, for the week. Um, by by saying by doing away with master narratives and substituting uh, free play, right? That's kind of a, a, a um, non hierarchical uh, play of signification for um, for whatever master narrative you used to uh, you used to be into. You, you are in essence um, substituting one master narrative for uh for another right and you know this is the um this is the thing i don't know i mean i think that can be true you definitely run across people who are making free play their new master narrative but i don't think that it necessarily must be true in all cases yeah i mean it's uh it's one of those tricky things you have to always be checking yourself to make sure that you're not uh 
not making too many broad teleological assumptions, but like I, I would I would uh, I would say that it is possible at least to uh, to try to avoid master narratives. The uh, I mean the thing about deconstruction is that it's you know in a lot of ways I think it's a response to the large influx of students into American universities. Um, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, following World World War Two in the same way, or the Korean War in the same way that, um, uh, in the same way that the New Criticism in in you know English literary studies was uh, a response to all the students flowing into the university uh, after World War One. Um, okay, so like I've, I've heard that before, and the, the the idea with the new criticism is that all you need is the text, right? So you take something like an episode of Skins, take the Jowl episode, right? And you don't need to have any understanding of British hip-hop there to understand what the deal with her father is. You just look at, like, the basically the, the proportions of, the internal proportions of the work and say that, right. like... You know, we see the symbolism of the clarinet and the symbolism of the father-daughter relationship and uh, the, like, the fact that her music teacher curses like a sailor means that she's authentic in the same way that, like, the rappers are and so on. Um, So that's, like, the new criticism. And that makes sense that it's something that appeals to a massive influx of new students because you have a lot of people who don't come in with a whole lot of cultural capital and they can still talk about Shakespeare in a meaningful way. It's also, I mean, it's also a system, right? It's a system with rules. And when you suddenly have all these new students, you can't rely, you can't rely on this kind of, um, genteel kind of bellatristic, you know, passing down of knowledge, you know, in a series of fireside chats in uh, comfy leather chairs, uh, the way the university system has, had had largely worked up to that point, or at least uh, you know the the humanities had largely worked up to that point, being an aristocratic uh, endeavor. You know, you need you need a system you need a system to teach. And I, I was actually it's funny it's funny that you that you go to the contents of the system. I was thinking that just because it's a system, you know, you need something to. Uh, you need something to to uh, <laughs> you need teach. something that no child left behind can measure with a rubric. Well, it's I, guess. A, I mean, yeah, something you know, something like that. And then you know, you have this. And okay, so right, yeah, the the idea is that the whatever text you're dealing with is a self-contained system. It doesn't reach out into the world. And imagining that it reaches out into the world, you are. Uh, um, you're engaging uh, or you're falling prey to, you know, what gets called the intentional fallacy, uh, the kind of multiple kinds of, of naive thinking uh, whereby we imagine that we can know um, what the author of something was was thinking uh, when he or she created the work. Um, and so you you in uh, you privilege certain kinds of reading in the new criticism. You privilege looking for irony, for, you know, paradox, for uh, metaphorical uh, language, you know, tropes, um, figurative language, and, and things like this. Um, uh, and ultimately, what, what you, um, you know, what you come up with is kind of a, a, a self-contained system uh, that, is, that is ordered and that there's kind of an answer to it. The, the, the poem, and they, they mostly dealt with poetry, with romantic poetry, a lot of it, which is very good for this kind of thing. Um, is, is an equation that, that you can solve. And then, you know, with post-structuralism, you know, it turns out, right, that um, <laughs> you always come up with the poem as an equation that you can solve and the answer is free play. But um, it privileges 
looking for figurative language, irony, paradox, you know, tropes of various kinds, uh, engaging in the text in a in a very similar way. And it's the kind of thing people who are really sort of politically committed to uh, to sort of postmodern literary studies, when you point out to them that that their uh, uh, their method has more in common with you know the 1920s and new criticism <laughs> than it mm-hmm. than it really has. Um, differences from it that the, that the differences seem to be kind of superficial um interesting uh, see i like i approach this stuff not not through literature but through film and through music huh. and i feel like in those worlds it's much more about kind of pointing out the the seams in the the text where it says something that the author probably would not have intended it to you know um like so so, so quite different. I feel like with, with new criticism, a lot of the time, even though you can't like, you know, obviously you don't know what the author meant to say, but it's kind of like the, the artwork is a communication and you, you solve it to find the properties of the artwork. Whereas uh, the other way of looking at it, the kind of uh, I don't know, post-structural is the wrong, is a, is a lazy catch-all, but whatever. Uh, the post-structural way of looking at it is to see it not as a communication, but rather as a kind of like big pile of stuff that you can then sort of twist around and order any way that you want. But that, like having, having one right answer is not necessarily the point. It's like, you know, you can, you can make it mean what you would like it to mean, and then you, you sift through that for the meanings that are interesting to you. Well, there's, I mean, that's, that's interesting. That's interesting to me. I think there's probably a debt to psychoanalysis there because you're talking about analyzing works of art in, in a way that there's a manifest content and a latent content. That is, right. That yeah. is and I think, say, right. I mean, psychoanalysis comes in very, very explicitly quite often with these things. Especially, I, I mean, to film criticism. I mean, you know, you talk about film as being kind of like a dream text, you know? Mm-hmm. And, sure, or, sure. Or, I mean, I guess, you know, music. Music also, uh, right? And it's funny because of the uh, because they're less they're less linguistic, right? Than, uh, mm-hmm. than novels or or poems or things things like this. And so you kind of have more opportunities to create different kinds of meaning because um, oh, because there's I mean there's less there on the surface. Sure, it's uh, it's easier to see pictures in clouds than to see pictures in like. I don't know, in other pictures. In other pictures, sure. You know, to, to, to say that a cloud looks like a bunny rather than saying the Mona Lisa looks like a bunny. And it's well, because and that, that sort of, that emptiness. So it's, I mean, you know, it's funny because the, the, um, the just to, why, why on earth would I bring it back to skins? But just to bring it back to skins a little bit, like uh, what, what you're saying that I think is, is uh, really profoundly right is, um, uh, is, that, is that we kind of get sold a bill of goods about... Um, about kind of both the manifest and the latent content of of what Skins is and what it's going to be about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That uh, that it uh, it says that it's going to be about kind of like crazy, sexy fun, and it's not about that. <laughs> like honestly, I, when, when you were talking about all the the adult sex lives earlier, it's like we should really call this over the summer these fucking parents right. and these teenagers who who fail for whatever reason to fuck. Um, <laughs> and like, I mean, you know, well, except for Tony. <laughs> Oh, but but even like Tony doesn't even want to do it, right? It's like Michelle every now and then will drag him into bed with her, uh, not because she wants to have sex, but because she feels insecure. Right, exactly. And Tony's yeah, that's... like, oh, all right, you know, noblesse oblige. Because I'm the cool guy, I have to be sexually active with the hot girl. 
Right. Well, that's funny. I mean, like, why, you know, why are these teenagers fucking? It, and right, we assume that it's for the same reasons that that you know we uh, mature adults, uh, we three, uh, you know, would be would be doing it. And um, it's it's very different, right? It's not. You know, the Times magazine had the kind of in the front of the book, the first article was something about uh, this YouTube, this YouTube sensation of like, uh, I don't know, I never have seen uh, YouTube videos, but um, uh, there was one of like, you know, five year old girls dancing to Beyonce and doing like some ridiculous, provocative, sexy dance uh, dressed in like their parents had dressed them up in, you know, Jean Benet Ramsey beauty pageant. Uh, outfits and you know um, so everyone's up in arms and about the sexualization of children and and things like this and and so there uh, you know so this was a a, um, you know a a springboard into a discussion of the kind of sexualization of young children especially girls and Barbie and the Bratz dolls and uh, the the kids in their sexting and you know (laughs) Right, all these things, and they, they they interviewed a lot of psychologists who worked with. Um, uh, well, uh, maybe they interviewed a lot. They quoted they quoted two, uh, w- you know, one from Berkeley and one I think from Harvard. And the the idea was that um, uh, when when you talk to that uh, that um, these fucking teenagers are actually the the kind of the acting sexy is becoming detached from erotic feeling. Uh, with them, and that it's more, uh, it's more a fashion. It's more a pose. And mm-hmm. when when you ask, uh, you know, an average teenage girl these days about um, about being sexy, you'll more you'll get more an answer about how she looked. Like I looked good doing that mm-hmm. dance, or something right. like that. Rather than right. you know, the dance was an expression of how I was feeling. I was feeling erotic, or I was feeling turn- you know, I was feeling turned on. I was any of the things that that you might expect from a from a an adult sexuality or kind of a mature integrated sexuality and i, mean, that- I remember i remember when i was back in health class in high school they, get, they had us watch a video about chastity and huh. they had this girl on there who was uh she was like she had taken some kind of purity pledge and had one of those rings and she was uh talking about how she doesn't see any disconnect between being a sort of a sworn completely virginal person and you know and she she drew the line at like Anything that's covered by clothes, you can't touch in any way, right? Wow. Um, she said, I, I think that it's still possible to be sexual and be sexy. And I was like, and, and then she went on to explain what she meant. And it's like you said, it's like, it's about kind of like how you look and how you comport yourself. And I was like, you know, this, I, I kind of pat myself on the back. I feel like this was fairly profound for a person in high school. I was saying like, well, yes, you can do those things that you're talking about, but to refer to that as sexiness is a a different use of the word than I think the the English language has heretofore seen, right? Like, you know, it's a different thing. It's it's all all about appearance. And this has been essentially the the narrative that's won out, right? Like it's uh, maybe maybe on TV it's a little bit, uh, the deck is stacked against it because all that you ever get there is appearance. Um, But then if TV is where people are getting their impressions of sexuality, maybe it's no wonder that we've got a generation where the, the kind of image of sex has become what sex is and the, the action of sex. It's not fair to say that I, I, I'm not sure 
I, I agree with you. I, I think I, I want to quibble with one thing because this gets a little parents television council. It, mm. It's not that people are getting their impressions of sexuality from TV. It's that uh, television is kind of reflecting the broader move in the larger culture uh, towards a certain conception of sexuality. And it's, uh, you know what I mean? It's not just. No, oh, yeah, sure. It's not a one way street. It's yeah. always kind of fe- a feedback loop. And it's also it's, it's very it's multimedia. Hey, you know what? Quiet, Africa. Hey. Hey, you know what? Hey, you know what? This is not a two-person <laughs> podcast. Um, it could be. No, yeah, I, it may I mean, as well guys, be. What are you? What are you clacking your primitive wooden tools back there? I keep hearing things on the feet oh, from damn. you. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm conducting a traditional Maasai circumcision ceremony while we do this <laughs> podcast. So excuse me, all right? Excuse me for multitasking. Um, no, um, what I was gonna say is actually this this discussion. Um, actually reminds me of some dis- uh, uh, discussions that we had um, when we were discussing Kurt's homosexuality right. in Glee, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, um, and this came up, I think we discussed it in the episode entitled Santorum. Um, and, I think, uh, um, and I think even in, in, I think it was in that episode or a following episode of Glee, um, you know, uh, Sue has this conversation with Kurt where, you know, she says like, you know, you're not gay, you know, like, you know, you, you sort of, you know, you're interested in, you know, you, you don't know what you are. You haven't had sex. Um, you know, you, you have this impression of what gayness is. It's constructed through, you know, sort of, um, in part drawing on multimedia, uh, um, uh, resources and, and through a certain kind of, you know, performative identity, which is a lot of what, what, what Glee is about, but like it, it is kind of, um, divorced uh from from the actual sexuality right it's the kind of converse of uh uh non-sexual orientation right it's a, or it's 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 so we talked about non-oriented sexuality huh. uh with reference to Brittany and Sa- santana and this is kind of like a non-sexual orientation yeah um, huh. Huh. i like that i like that a lot <laughs> africa <laughs> it's um so, yeah, in terms of a non-sexual orientation, in that there are some characters in the show who seem to be, like, their their role in life is to be non-sexual, right, to a certain degree? Well, Emma, right? Uh, Rachel, to a certain extent. Um, Terry is presented as kind of a horror picture of sexuality. Uh, and, you know, the fact that she can't conceive, you know, is sort of a... You know, a nail in her coffin, right? Yeah, but I think that um, what I was saying is that that like orientation is is di- divorced from sexuality, right? So mm-hmm. that it's like I like I like boys, or like you know, um, but like um, like is a is a gesture is an orientation that's divorced from the actual um, the actual sexual act that right. Um, right. Uh, originally, the, the, like, I mean, the causal the, relationship you know, is almost—it's like I like these things, so I must also like dick. Like, the, so. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a classic way that uh, homosexuals are portrayed in in American media, right? Is that like they're they're gay, they're presented as the gay character, but they don't—they often don't get to actually have relationships with uh with you know with another man or with another woman uh, because that's you know that's too threatening. They're just kind of. They, they wear it like a suit. And this brings up, uh, I mean, 
we'll, we'll go ahead and slap a history of sexuality into the show notes, right? As long as we're as long as we're doing the postmodernism episode, it, man. It's like, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, uh, it's like a thin crust pizza. You know, you can you can add whatever you want, and it maintains its crispness. Um. Okay, but like, so this is um, one of one of Foucault, Michel Foucault's big, big kind of contributions to the way that people think about stuff is the idea that. Um, the, the category of homosexual is a relatively modern uh, invention. It used to be that maybe, like, you were, you were a person who occasionally liked to have sex with dudes. And, like, that act was sodomy, and it was a sin, and you had to, to you know, to do your penance for it. But after you'd done your penance, the slate was wiped clean. Whereas, like, later on, it became a thing that you were. So that you could be, for instance a Catholic priest who is nominally celibate, right? You're not supposed to be having any sex at all. And the fact that were you to have sex, you might want to do it with another guy uh, makes you still gay, right? And that's something that is, a, I mean, I forget exactly when it comes up, maybe like 19th century uh, into, into 20th century. So relating it back to pizza, it's like the condition of pizza-ness is something that we apply to all things that are called thin crust pizza, whereas maybe an earlier civilization would have, or like not an earlier civilization, but a different civilization would say, okay, this just happens to be flatbread with tomatoes on it. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't become a pizza all the time unless it's, uh, unless it's being a pizza in a specific instance by being served in a pizza restaurant. I think I broke the podcast. Well, no, the, I, I mean, I think we've cashed this out. Let's, uh, hungry, basically. <laughs> let's, um, let's push on, uh, you know, hey, if, if, um, if it's okay with you, Mr. Host. Yeah. Uh, well, what I wanted to, to try to connect it to, um, to skins a little bit, because we were talking about, like, how sexuality works on Glee, right? Now, there are some people who have sex, some people who don't. I feel like, um, actually, they've said that they're going to bring in a boyfriend for Kurt. Uh, in the in the next season, right. so they're going to have him actually have a, a sexuality. Um, and while Emma and Rachel are kind of presented as those who do not have sex, they're eventually getting to have sex is going to be a major plot point. And you see them like on that arc, looking at Skins and, and the character of Sid in particular, who's like you know this big virgin, right? It's a, a big part of who his character is. I don't feel like there's an arc where he's actually progressing. I feel like he more kind of wallows in his condition of virginhood. I don't know. I mean, we'll we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I well, mean, there not, may be there may be some. Being, it's not presented as being like like teleological, right? Like the yeah. like the, the telos of Sid is to be Sid. Like he's he's yeah. already there. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's actually all of the characters on that show, right? You talk about Glee being performing the identity, and you decide who you are. The characters in Skins. Have, don't have that choice. You know, they are who they are because of fate or, or birth or something like that. And then they perform that identity. So, I mean, in, in a way, sometimes it becomes one of these be true to yourself things. I feel like with Jal, it's like, oh, well, she needs to be true to our, her artistic gifts and whatnot. Yeah. But then you have the next episode with Chris. It's like he needs to be true to being a drug addict almost. Right. Like mm-hmm. that, that's the role that you've got. So you follow it and, and take it to the end of the road. Do you know? Do you know uh, yeah. who is true to himself? Mad Twatter. I want. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, I, I want to. I can't believe we've gone basically one point seven five episodes <laughs> about the first three episodes of of Skins and not talked at all about Mad Twatter. 
<laughs> Twatter. 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 Sorry, Madison Twatter. <laughs> yeah. Who is uh, in, in our show notes? We were discussing this guy, and uh, I think I described him as a train spotting solution to a Dawson's Creek problem. <laughs> right? Madison could you, Twatter could you is. Pack that, please. <laughs> yeah, that's. I, I think that that's <laughs> it's something wonderful. That... It's wonderful and it makes intuitive sense, but I'd love to hear it's, well, uh, it, the, take us under the hood a little bit. And and that's you see because there are like three or four levels of reference in that, and this is the trouble with overthinking it is that the overthinking it writers because we've all known each other for ten years have a critical have an internal critical vocabulary. And in yeah, a way, we're, we're an interpretive community, much like a thin crust pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and in the in in a way, I I almost feel bad. Uh, you know, it's kind of like we're letting the magic out of our voodoo by by letting other people in on it but you know like but you know Belinky wrote the article about the ghost ship moment so yeah. you know unpack this the podcast uh... doesn't have that many members so <laughs> what, what's it a reference to it's uh is it a is it a fenzel phrase where he would sometimes describe things as, as... a star trek solution to a babylon 5 problem Right. Whereas, like the, the problems on babylon 5 tend to be about kind of uh geopolitics and the problems on Star Trek tend to be about, oh, there's a space anomaly. At exactly 50 minutes into the episode, we need to do some technobabble to solve the space anomaly. And so, like, it would be a situation where, like, you've got some tricky political issue where uh, there's not enough natural resources. And then someone, like, says, well, if we just reverse the polarity of the deflector dish, then there'll be enough water rights for everyone. And it's a Star, Star, Star Trek solution to a Babylon 5 problem. Uh, here we've got this show, Skins, which is basically a teen soap opera about how, like, they're all so, so emotionally conflicted and they're just trying to grow up and they don't want your life or whatever. And then you've got this character with a crazy mustache, <laughs> a crazy twitch and giant, giant stockpiles of drugs and prostitutes upstairs in his house. And he's just running around like beating people up and smashing stuff and, uh, and being generally he's also a substitute teacher. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's, an, he's an interesting character. I think that it's one of the reasons why I'm not so satisfied with Skins, honestly. I mean, it's fine, but I'm not like, it doesn't catch fire, is because I find Madison Twatter so much more interesting than like freaking <laughs> Sid. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's true. I think the peripheral characters actually are, yeah, tend to be a little more interesting. I like, uh, I, I think the actress who plays Jal, whoever, whoever that girl is, has done a, done a great job, like, with that kind of, like, really internalized, uh, you know, kind of quiet, talented girl who has a lot going on, but like doesn't say anything. And then yeah. she kind of unloads on her father at the end. But the things she says are kind of stupid, you know, from the mm-hmm. point of view of like, if you're really going to tell the guy off, you know, th- this is not where you want to go. But it's like, you know, she's a, she's a teenager and she's been rehearsing that speech in her head a lot. You know, yeah. you know? and then yeah. and like comes out, you know, comes out with it. And, you know, it lands. Uh, it lands in the sense that like, you know, Dad notices and probably feels bad, but you know, I I don't know, and I I think she's just I think she's just well acted. Um, yeah, yeah, I think Chris I is like, I think Chris is pretty well acted. You know what I mean? I would say a lot of the acting is honestly pretty solid. Yeah, like, that would be that's kind of like I tune in for that and for the uh, you know and for Madison. <laughs> I'm not I'm not made of stone. Actually, like I found that there are typically two or three shots per episode that are really kind of great. Like, the moment when Chris wakes up from his, uh, like, three-day drug coma and his toilet is gone, that was hilarious, you know? 
Um, the, the moment in the in the Cassie episode where she's kind of like walking her fingers down the railing of a of of like the the school balcony and saying in her head like look up if you like me look up if you like me as she sort of daydreams about Sid I thought that was great but they're just these tiny little moments then the rest of it is like you know soap opera and I don't know this has turned very negative <laughs> what do you guys think of the show um. Well, no, I, you know, I'm enjoying it. I look, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that the actors bring something, bring something to it. I mean, there, there's a sense of real experience. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? Even if it's totally ridiculous, there's, there's kind of a sense of, of, um, there's a sense of aimlessness to it that I, uh, that I appreciate it. Uh, you know, that, cause you don't get that in a show like Gossip Girl where everything is so fucking plot directed or, you know what I mean? Or Glee where it's kind of like a force, mm-hmm. a forced march through uh, a series of incidents. Sure. Sure. In yeah, a way, I, I do. I mean, I like the loose feel, right? So the loose yeah. feel of, of kind of these interconnected, like I like the structure of the show as well of the, the, there's these character centric episodes, but still like the, 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 you know, this, this, center kind of hovers within a, a web of forces that are moving in a lot of different directions, right? And I think the, the sort of visual style and acting style and, and sort of large arc fit together. I agree that, I mean, some of them, like, at the, so it's a, it's a show that actually works relatively well at the macro level and poorly mm-hmm. at the micro level. Um, making it the like, awesome, or, yeah, making it the opposite of Gossip Girl. <laughs> Although right. honestly, that's, like if you yeah. if you zoom into the very tiny details, like things like performance and things like that, it starts working again. So it's like it's the middle. So it's the mezzo level. It doesn't yeah. work. It fails at the mezzo level, which is unfortunately where traditionally entertainment takes place. You know, it's like the the level that uh, that defines good. For the mainstream consensus of good is the level where skins is act. Is, well, that's, is yeah, I mean, and that's something that's about serialized drama, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where where it's really it's the kind of grind of episode after episode after episode where where the action is. Uh, it's not you know it's not cinematic where you can kind of go in on that exquisite you know exquisite little little detail or else you know pull way the fuck out to you know the grand sweep of of you know epic history. Uh, it, I mean, it lives in the um, what is what? Who said you know history is just one damn thing after another, right? Like, and that's that's uh, that's where episodic uh, or serialized drama lives. Isn't the one damn thing after another? One damn thing after another. Well, if you want to live in the one damn thing after another, you can uh, you can call in, leave us a voicemail. Oh, we didn't even talk about rap music. We didn't even talk about rap music. We can talk about rap music. I just read a magazine, Salt and Pepper, Heavy D in the limousine. Every Saturday, Raff Attack, Mr. Magic, Marley Mall. No, you want to you want you want to rap. I understand that. Better to leave people wanting more. I, I just want <laughs> you know, what, wondering what, um, wondering what uh, uh, Jal's dad does. You know. Yeah, right. So that's an interesting thing. Jal is this character whose father is apparently a fantastically successful and rather wealthy rap artist. Like her house Wait, looks a we, lot How nice do we know he's a rap house. artist? How, like what? Do we, we see him. We see him freestyling at the at the end of the the episode, right? But that could be yeah, like. And, I mean, that's like. I'm, or is that like beat poetry? Like. I think he's a rapper. I think he's a rapper because he. 
uh, is showcasing his son's rap band. And, like, his old sort of crew are sitting around being like, oh, they're not very good. But, you know, I mean, we remember back in the day when we were going through that. To me, it seemed pretty clear that he was uh, that he's supposed to be a rapper. Yeah, I see. I didn't I didn't get that. I, I didn't in part in part because of the the way like all of the cover art was presented. Like mm-hmm. I, I pegged him more as maybe like a soul artist or I mean, I actually I mean, I don't know enough about the history of, um, you know, sort of black British, like British, like, I don't, I mean, I know a little bit about contemporary British hip hop, but I don't know what kind of music, um, you know, um, black people were making in England before Dizzy Rascal. I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing is that he's presented Giles' father as a kind of a, a, a bizarre constellation of things. Like, we know that he is, he is hard, right? Because at the end of the episode, him and his boys, like, grab Matt Twatter and throw him in the back of a car. Uh, we know also that he's kind of, like, socially conscious in his, in his lyricism, because when we listen to him give that freestyle, it seems to be, you know, meaningful and deep and whatnot. <laughs> and it, it wasn't actually all that great, but I feel like it was meant to be, um, you know, not... Mm. Not uh, not slack talk, not gun talk, but uh, but socially conscious. Uh, spitting right, right. Like, he's no he's no young jock, right? Yeah, he's no young jock. Um, but and, and like you say, like the cover art of his albums is very very classy, and he goes around in a suit. Yeah, everywhere. it could be it could be the cover of Giant Steps or something. The uh, yeah. you know the some of the things that we have, except even and, more, except even classier in a way. You know, yeah, and like and there there are certainly rappers who are like that, but. The UK rap scene tends to be more like the rap that his sons are presented doing, where it's like it's a lot more about uh, the grain of the voice than it is about the lyrical content. And there's a lot of macho posturing. I love how like whenever whenever that group starts to rap, like they go for like five seconds and then they just like start shouting A and bumping, bumping chests. It's a, it's a nice little like magic realist touch. <laughs> but right. Well, it's I mean, there's a weird I, I think there's a weird class thing and, and there uh, that there was a kind of a missed opportunity like with Jal, Jal when she um, went on TV, I kind of wanted her to talk about uh, her privileged life. You know what I mean? As like a wealthy kid in this uh you know, in, in this environment rather than just being, being sullen, yeah, you know, <laughs> like, because the, the point was to showcase how, you know, how good the, the school is to the black kids. Right. Yeah. And that, that, uh, I kind of wanted her to give the lie to that by, you know, exposing the, the type of, of wealth, you know, that she comes from. Sure. Sure. That like, I come from a, a rather wealthy musical family and for like, Within the particular goal of learning to play the clarinet, I have honestly had every opportunity in the world. Right, and that you know, you know like uh, certainly not not everyone with these opportunities uh, could could do what I do because of talent or you know the the hard work that I've put in. But you know, it's not like I you know it's not like I struggled from you know it's not like I worked at McDonald's for three years so that I could yeah. afford this clarinet. Uh, <laughs> I just love the idea of a clarinetist having to be like you know I come from the streets you know (laughs) (laughs) my my clarinet flow is real yo benny goodman in the house 
There was also a nice moment in the episode when uh, when Matt Twatter picks up the clarinet and turns out to be like a really good clarinet player <laughs> <laughs> before he smashes it against the wall. Well, you'd think he'd appreciate I, I, it. I, I don't think he's going to return, but I really wish he would. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, sh- the world is a smaller place without Matt Twatter. In it. <laughs> right, are, are, are we ready to go? Yeah. Okay, does your clarinet playing come from the streets? If so, send us an email at tftpodcast at overthinkingit.com <laughs> or give us a call and, and play some, some fat clarinet beats into 20FATJOG01. That's 203-285-6401. Or you can follow us on the Twitter at twitter.com slash tftpodcast. Doesn't really give you an opportunity to talk to us, but you can you can listen to us talk, which evidently you you seem to have an interest in no, doing we'll that. Get, we'll get Got on the we'll get on the twitters. We'll we'll get on the at replies. Uh, okay, yeah, like you. you follow us, we'll follow you. It's a little a uh, little quid pro quo there, um, and 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 certainly you know. If you if you don't have anything to say, at least come back to listen either at overthinkingit.com, the website that subjects the popular culture that uh, to a level of scrutiny it doesn't deserve, or right here in this very podcast where we will continue to talk and talk and talk and talk about post-structuralism and about uh, mustaches and about drugs and about, of course, these fucking teenagers. Fucking. These fucking teenagers. teenagers. God, you- you, you could have set us up better for that. You know? <laughs> I could have, yeah. Never, never have me host this again. <laughs> no, you, I, I, know, I know that we've got a, a title for the episode again, but I feel like we should change it to never have me host this again. No, you did a good job. <laughs>